This week, before we get started, we'd like to thank Barbara Kay, a physical therapist in Massachusetts who said, Thank you. I am more well now because of your work. Thank you, Barbara, for helping us to keep doing it. Hi, I'm Wendy Dean, and this is Moral Matters. Daniel Blumberg is a clinical psychologist who has worked with law enforcement officers for nearly four decades. He is an authority on the selection, training, and clinical supervision of undercover operatives. He's also a co-author of The Power Manual, a step-by-step guide to improving police officer wellness, ethics, and resilience, which is published by the American Psychological Association. Simon wasn't able to join me today, but I was eager to have this conversation. So let's get right to it. Dr. Dan Bloomberg, I'm so glad that you're here with us on the show. I've really been looking forward to speaking with you. Thank you, Wendy. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you give us a little bit of your background? Sure. Um, Gosh, I started in uh, police psychology back in 1986 with the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. And um, from there... Uh, moved down to San Diego. It's working as a police psychologist with the San Diego Police Department for several years, and at that point, uh, started growing my private practice, working with many um, local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies and their officers, of course, um, and did that for you know a lot, quite a long time. But in uh, 2009, when I essentially became an empty nester, I um, wanted to get back into teaching. Um, It was something that I probably felt, um, you know, really in my blood, but um, academia was not compatible with the idea of raising my boys, which I really wanted to do, and a private practice was perfect for that. So I I got a faculty position, and at that point, um, you know, as, as all faculty, we have to research, publish, all that kind of stuff. And to make a long story short, um, I started a research project on police integrity. Mm-hmm. That research project, um, the results from that project, really um, created for me a, um, the beginning of, a pro- of developing a program um, focused on the relationship between officer wellness and their ethical decision making. And um, in conjunction with looking at why officers sometimes may act unethically. I was introduced to the concept of moral injury. And um, to me, it's really fundamental that that um, moral injury is really the, the interconnection between officer wellness and ethics. So I think it's really interesting, the connection that you make between wellness and ethics and your ability to make sound ethical decisions depends somewhat on your wellness. That's something that um, we've really been pushing um, not only officers to understand, but uh, um, healthcare providers to understand, and most importantly, um, the organizations to understand. Yeah. Uh, so can you just, can you talk a little bit more about the connection between wellness, ethics, and that intersection of moral injury? Oh, absolutely. I think that um, this is um, kind of 
where, um, like I said, the, the research project kind of um, was the instigator of this, the findings that, that um, in a nutshell, um, we did a project that looked at police integrity and we, we looked at uh, several hundred recruits from several different academies and we tested their commitment to ethical principles before they started the academy and at the end of the academy. And essentially we found no significant changes that the, the training itself, despite what a lot of the literature had said, did not significantly reduce their commitment to ethical principles. Some people went up, some people went down, but, but um, you know, overall there wasn't a significant change. But we looked at them a year later once um, they had been out on patrol. And what we found was in just one year, there was a significant decline in their self-reported commitment to ethical principles. Wow. So that led me to look at why. And that's, I dove into the um, literature on ethical decision-making, and this was mostly comes out of business, not surprisingly, I I suppose. Um, Why do people... Uh, make unethical decisions. And a, a colleague of mine who retired as a assistant chief of police, I, I met frequently with her for a while and trying to understand this. And, and I would discuss the uh, theory. And some of these were very obvious to me, but others she would say, oh, and go through a litany of, of um, just routine police behaviors that are indicative of this particular theory. Um, and so that led to um, looking at a more organized approach to um, how uh, these, these uh, behaviors can occur and how their commitment to ethical principles might drop so dramatically after just a year. Now, of course, maybe after five years, it goes back up or, or whatever. We didn't look at it any further than that, which w- would be an interesting um, study. But more importantly, as a clinician, I, I, I thought we need to look at what's going on here. Um, and a lot of it stemmed from the training. A lot of it stemmed from the um, just routine practices and a lot of it stemmed from the organization. And so hmm. I know that was rather vague. And if, if you want, I, I, I'd be happy to give you a little bit more of the um, kind of the, the, the re- that relationship, the, the details there. Um, really what's going on is, um, let's say, for example, one of the core um, fundamental um, as, as, as we're talking about the, that relationship, um, if you think about it, um, there, what we found anyway is that looking at moral injury is, is best understood in the broader context of the other moral risks of policing. Mm-hmm. And so we think of, okay, why would an officer commit a moral transgression? Or let's put it this way, why would an officer do something that could result in feeling that they violated their, their um, personal values? And what we look at is two converging paths. And so the, the, the first path, these are, are routine risks. Uh, unlike uh, moral injury as it's written about or initially in military, um, that often um, is a result of, of violent confrontations. A lot of what we're talking about here is not. It's just um, routine behavior. Um, so the first path 
are the risks that increase the likelihood that officers are going to experience emotional and spiritual distress. Mm-hmm. So these are things like moral distress, compassion fatigue, burnout, emotional exhaustion. These are things that um, through the just dealing with the, the daily exposure to human suffering, right? seeing social situations that are that look like they they have no um, solution mm-hmm. that um, the officers are being thrust into the middle of these things um, if you look at it and say these officers are just functioning at less than peak levels regarding their health and wellness and in doing so they're more vulnerable to do something or as we know with moral injury fail to do something um, that they later experience as a moral transgression now, the second path contain the risks that increase the likelihood that officers will engage in misconduct. And the, 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 the best, most comprehensive theory of this is Bandura's moral disengagement theory. Um, one of the key components of that is dehumanization. Yeah. And we know that um, a lot of traditional police training creates this us versus them, which is for, at the very beginning of their career, they're already... Um, essentially being trained to to dehumanize. Right. Uh, to, and so there's also moral compromise, moral licensing, um, the slippery slope, which was an interesting theory um, that I wasn't familiar with before. The idea that if you make a mistake, um, you don't have a recoil like, oh, right. no, I, that's not. Instead, it just makes it easier to do another. But so these officers are functioning at less than peak levels regarding their commitment to ethical principles and therefore are more vulnerable to do something or, again, fail to do something um, that is experienced later as a moral transgression. So upon reflection, the officer says, I can't believe I did that. That's not who I am. But we can't ignore the fact that the two paths converge. And that's where I think is the transactional relationship between officer wellness and ethics. Um, For example, emotionally exhausted officers Mm -hmm. are going to be more likely to dehumanize people and morally disengaged officers are less likely to feel compassion satisfaction. Right. So what we see is ethical erosion is how I, you know, I don't I, I just... You know, think that's a, a a visual that we can we can grasp that that and it's and officers who I talk to um, resonate with that concept that it's a slow erosion. Some some officers um, it's slower than than others, but with their ethical values compromised, officers are more likely to do something um, which is going to lead to moral injury. I think it's really interesting. So I think a lot about how various professions dehumanize. And I think in the military, it's, there's a lot of literature on that because we know that in order to be able to kill someone, you have to dehumanize the other. I think law enforcement has some of that as well. And in medicine, it's not because, because we're using lethal force, but it's because we have to do things that are uncomfortable, unpleasant, that hurt people in order to heal them. And so in each case, you're taught, as you go through the process of training or education, you're taught to compartmentalize. And that can be really healthy, but you also have to know when to step out of it or when to make it a little bit more porous than might be automatic. 
And I think the other the other piece of it is we're moving more and more and more towards metricizing our professions, looking at productivity or revenue generation or various other metrics in policing. And what I've heard from folks is that the more we put metrics on things and measure by numbers, the more dehumanizing the process becomes. People start feeling more like a number because they are tracked more like a number. You've been in this for for several decades, and I, I wonder if that rings true with you at all. It's a it's a struggle that we've been having because we've been pushing for changes in um, basic police training um, to to use a more adult learning model to require more um, uh, abstract reasoning and coping with ambiguous situations um, to uh, the con the the the. Great literature um, over the last many years that have come out talking about trying to change away from the uh, warrior mentality mm-hmm. to the guardian spirit of policing, mm-hmm. and um, the mis- the mistake that some people who challenge that think that oh, um, the idea of a of a guardian is going to somehow be softer on on crime, and that's just not the case. It has to do with how you treat people. And I think that um, you can create, through training, the most well-prepared, confident officers who can use force with, if necessary, but um, who are not being trained um, to dehumanize. However, and this, you know, I, I, when I started, and, and for many, many years, my, my role as a police psychologist was out in the field and ride-alongs and, and going to shootings and SWAT enforcement actions and things like this. And I've seen... Um, the situations, and I've seen some of um, the the, um, the the situations that that officers confront on a routine basis, multiple times, you know, a shift, um, and it becomes uh, a self self preservation uh, technique um, to dehumanize. Correct. It's not just um, a matter of I need to do this in order to. Um, get into a, a violent confrontation with someone as as the military is. It's it 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 has to do with the ability to go into a situation. One of the um, one situation I saw, um, you know, after having worked at a uh, uh, with children and and being you know coming from a developmental psychology background um, and being a camp counselor and a camp director, um, I was just amazed going to uh, on ride-alongs with officers and seeing uh, toddlers walking around in diapers that hadn't been changed in several days right um, and and you know health and human services um, uh, child protective services don't come in and, and remove children in those situations because technically even though they're walking barefoot in um, yards that have broken glass and everything they're not deemed um, you know that much of a, of a risk everything's relative right yeah um and so these officers are in those situations and in order to go home and see their children and deal with um see dealing dealing with human suffering and the reality of of how they're working these are not even in enforcement situations these are just regular day-to-day i'm in the community this is my beat right and you see these situations dehumanization becomes um kind of self-survival yeah and i think that's what we see in the emergency room as well Absolutely. And in the ICU and in a lot of situations, it's it's not a matter of a one-time intervention. It's, this is my everyday. And in order to be able to get through it, 
this is who I need to be. But then how do I, um, how do I pay attention to what that feels like so that I can turn it off when I need to? Right. So I want to shift a little bit and talk about what you see as the paths to the repair of moral injury. Because I think you've done a lot of work on this. And what I found really fascinating was a lot of what you talk about doesn't involve the individual themselves, although it does in some ways, you know, maintaining their wellness, et cetera. But it also involves the organization. And you talk about prevention and intervention. And I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. Well, um, our book and, and our focus, obviously, uh, as clinicians, is on with the individual. Um, because ultimately, the individual has to um, take care of uh, themselves. And, and so, we, you know, this isn't going to be a chicken or the egg kind of thing. They both have to happen simultaneously, mm-hmm. I think. Um, that, that every individual officer has to be committed to, regardless of what's going on in the organization, um, what can I do to take care of myself? Um, and I've seen officers over the years really struggle with feeling that the organization isn't doing enough. Um, and my response to that is always, um, if you want to stay there until your retirement, um, you need to then take care of yourself and not hit your head against the wall, hoping that something's going to change. Um, but there are so many things that the organization can do right. from the one hand, let's, you know, I, I don't want to gloss over the individual. I think there's, there's, and this is probably um, true for people beyond um, law enforcement, but really, you know, I, don't, I think that, I, that all of the things that the individuals can do um, specifically on, on um, building compassion satisfaction to combat compassion fatigue, um, looking at self-compassion and being able to learn how to forgive yourself um, and understand that that um, being human means that we're going to be fallible and we're going to make mistakes. Um, unfortunately, in medicine and in law enforcement, some of those can be really, really terrible mistakes. Um, so so I, I'm, I'm going to push back for just a second. Okay. Because I do think we make mistakes, for sure. This may be where medicine and law enforcement may be slightly different because we have different structures around us. But with with medicine, I think sometimes it's really hard for folks to feel like we're doing the right thing because the business goals of our organization, which we're being asked to meet, may be different than our professional obligations. And so it becomes really hard for us to say, I'm just going to put my head down and do this because then I feel complicit in the system. The interesting part of this is is when it comes to looking at law enforcement from the multiple layers of of um, responsibility. So you have the individual who gets who goes to a call. I want to jump in here for one second because as I went back and listened to this recording, I realized that it needed a bit of clarification. I think what Dan and I are talking about here, without explicitly saying it is acknowledging that there are three different levels of potential moral transgressions. We've talked before on the podcast about transgressions at an individual level, 
at the level of professional obligations, and at a societal level. And I think here what Dan is talking about are transgressions at an individual level, what our own personal moral beliefs and expectations are, rather than speaking about them at the level of a professional obligation. I just wanted to be clear about that, since it's most often professional obligations that we're talking about on the podcast. And now back to Dan. Um, responsibility. So you have the individual who, gets, who goes to a call. Mm-hmm. And if something tragic happens, um, th- is that on them? Is it on circumstances? Is it a mistake? I mean, um, so, so the, the, the common, when we're talking about moral injury, the, uh, one of the common things is that, and this stems from mostly from the military, if you're ordered to do something that runs contrary to your moral values. Okay, so that's kind of a given, right? Um, in terms of, of having to do something, seeing yourself doing something, but you're ordered to do it, and you're in kind of... But there are so many other areas in law enforcement where it doesn't really have anything to do with a supervisor. Now, um, it could be because of policies and procedures of the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, it could have to do with things with the criminal justice system. It could be state, federal, whatever. Um, but there are also more individual and personal situations that I think lead to this. And that, that those are things like um, when, as I mentioned, let's say that um, an officer gets a call to, to get to, to um, you know, a report of a, a child was found in a pool or something like that. Um, and, and they chose the wrong route. Then they can't get there in time to prevent a tragic right. outcome. It's just they chose the wrong route. Or... Um, a lapse in judgment. They were speeding to the scene and got in an accident, um, which I recently found out um, occurs far more often than I was ever aware of in terms of the number of officers because of the multitasking and everything else um, to get into to an accident, and, and they don't get there in time. They, but also then we, we have situations where, where it could be completely unavoidable. They, they, they just are stuck in heavy traffic. Right. They, there's, there's no way to get there. Um, the other part of this, though, is what happens with officers, and this is where I think maybe we diverge from, from, from the medical field, I hope, anyway. <laughs> because what I'm dealing with, um, what I see, um, is that there are times when the behavior is committed intentionally. Mm-hmm. So without thinking about the subsequent reactions, the, the officer may have a deliberately slow response to the call. Yeah. And now that gets into the whole other realm, which I think is, is most critical to the understanding of moral injury, which is um, understanding this type of behavior that um, comes from these other moral risks. Why would this person intentionally not respond as quickly as... As, as the dispatcher says that they should. Um, so that gets into this organizational stuff um, and the organization's responsibility, I think, to be able to, um, first of all, understand what moral injury is and all of the different ways in which the behavior can occur. And from there, the organization, um, I think, there has, a, has some really critical um, obligations to take care of their people in a lot better uh, ways. Everything from um, how they incorporate um, these things into performance evaluations and how they can destigmatize uh, mistakes, um, 
or let's just say destigmatize uh, moral transgressions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, um, as you were talking, I was thinking, so some of these getting stuck in traffic, that's, it's not a moral injury necessarily. It's a, it is a regrettable situation. But this is, this is where I really um, have it trying to expand um, for people to understand how moral injury occurs in, in police officers. When that officer finally gets there and sees that that child has died mm-hmm. and they think that they didn't get there in time, they feel guilty. And so the, to, to, to me, um, the label of moral injury is less important than understanding um, the consequences of one's actions or inactions leading to uh, these extreme feelings of guilt or um, shame. Right. So, uh, and, I, and I don't... They see I, it as a moral transgression. Hmm. I'm not saying that it's rational. Right. I, I guess that I, I mean, I can, I, I 100% understand the shame and the guilt in that situation. I can understand feeling that. I struggle to make it a moral injury because it, I can't control traffic. But this is where I think we need to look at the clinical picture of the individual. So, for example, um, I've struggled for the last few years with people who want to throw PTSD at <laughs> everything that an officer is experiencing. Right. And, and so the, the label of moral injury, let's say, um, the label for PTSD sometimes is helpful because they, it gives them something to hang a hat on. But uh, the label of moral injury can be... Um, it's a double-edged sword. I think it can be helpful to some degrees, but it's also unnecessary because to, to me, the clinical picture is they feel as though they have violated their core values and they feel that they did not live up to their moral standards. And so the result is intense feelings of guilt and shame um, and, and, I don't need to call that moral injury if someone wants to to define it in in a more narrow um, way. Um, looking at the circumstances, I look at it more from the standpoint of the clinical picture. And if those feelings stem from irrational thoughts, it's still it, it, it's how we would treat it. But it's not necessarily any different than any other circumstance. They they um, uh, feel it. They did not live up to their own moral standards. Yeah. I think this is the sort of gray area where, at least in healthcare, I think, are we pathologizing a normal response to an abnormal situation? Well, that's why the, that's why the, the, the key to be is not having to diagnose it, right. but to look at the, the clinical picture and be able to, to um, intervene. Now, the organization, this goes back to your initial question, the organization I think needs to be aware of all, at least law enforcement organizations need to be aware of all of the circumstances that officers, and especially these days with a lot of young and uh, officers who don't have a lot of life experience, how many um, situations might lead to them feeling as though they didn't live up to their to their own standards. And so if if um, they feel that way, we have to be able to 
figure out how are we going to address this? Um, is it coming from some irrational thought like, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't have done anything because there were circumstances were completely out of your control. That, that becomes, you know, the avenue for treatment. Um, but I think rather than work, and this goes again back to your earlier question, that, that rather than waiting to, to dissect, you know, is it a rational or irrational thought, if we do this from a preventative standpoint, yeah. if we educate about moral injury, if we bring it to light, bring the issue to light, to be able to, to um, expand people's understanding of the complexities of the job, um, that people do make mistakes, some of these are going to be um, experiences, moral transgressions. Things may happen completely out of your control that might lead to what you believe is not living up to your uh, moral standard. That also is something that has come from in from training. Right. You know that that the expectations that you are somehow you know superhuman and are supposed to solve everything. Yeah, is something that that um, it, it festers and feeds into um, this idea that some of these even irrational thoughts could lead to um, the feelings that, that are experienced as, as moral injury. Yeah. And, and as you talk about that change, that drop in officers' experience in their first year, it reminds me of medical students going from the first two years to the second two years into their clinical rotations. And as I think about what it's like for a young person coming into either profession, there's a lot of idealism around it. And we ask moral humans to come into a moral organization and do moral good. I think it was in your paper where you said, unlike the police cars that are black and white, you know, some of these choices are very gray. And I think for somebody who's idealistic coming into one of these professions without having a very realistic picture of what they look like, they can think that it will be easy to make those moral choices and those ethical choices. They're black or they're white. And then you get out into the world and realize, oh, wow, um, I'm not ready to wrestle with the gray. Some of them aren't ready and some of them are not capable. Yeah. And and this is where... Um, this is where I, I hope that, that um, in law enforcement we have something quite different than what you have in healthcare because um, when you talk about moral people wanting to get into a moral um, uh, organization and do moral good, um, this, is, this is where I fall back on um, wanting to look at the behavior um, because the behavior itself um, is critical, for, at least for, for law enforcement agencies, because some officers don't experience moral injury <laughs> because they fail to see that their actions or inactions um, are a moral transgression in the first place. Right. And you get into the, to the um, motivation of why someone wants to go into this field and the obligation of the organization to set a high moral standard to be able to, to not be flexible when it comes to s some of these things. Um, and this takes us back to those other moral risks. But the idea that some officers won't feel guilty for doing something that another officer sees as a moral transgression, and in fact, that then leads that officer um, to feel betrayed from witnessing that behavior. Right. That becomes the more complex 
dynamic that the organizations have to address. And by doing this, by putting it out there and be talking about it, when I started um, in police psychology, you couldn't even talk about stress management. Right. It was, <laughs> right. You know, you, you could. Right. That, that, there was no term called wellness, officer wellness. You couldn't even mention stress management because that was a time when it was like, hey, if you can't handle it, you don't belong here. And so things have come a long way in the last, you know, 40 years. But this is we're at the infancy right now when it comes to, to the moral stuff and the moral risks of policing. We really are at the infancy bit. And that's what's going to have to happen where the organization says, we've got to put this out there. We need to understand what our officers are going through. We need to understand what we are doing to our officers in creating these situations. We need to be much more involved in, in recognizing that a systemic organizational approach to moral injury uh, is going to be the thing that's necessary, not just throw um, uh, mental health resources, you know, and at a primarily officer-centered approach, uh, because it, it just doesn't work. I mean, we've been having, um, you know, psychological services for law enforcement for 40 years, and I think, if anything, you know, a lot of the problems associated with this, particularly moral injury, have increased so dramatically, which which I think is responsible for the increased number of officer suicides. Mm. Yeah, I love um, one of the things that you you talk about anticipating. I'm not sure you use these exact words, but you talk about anticipating that there will be these moral ambiguities, there will be these moral challenges, mm -hmm. and then helping to prepare officers not only not only by sending them out so that they can actually see what's happening before they get deeply committed, but also to give them a framework around which they can start to build the the skills of learning to deal with that ambiguity. And I think in, in medicine, we do some of that, but I think, I think it would be helpful to do more. I thought that was a really great approach. Well, thanks. I think that, that um, people don't like when I say this, but organizations have to do, be often, and when I say organizations, we're really specifically talking about the leaders at the top, have to be willing to be um, the most effective parents. And it doesn't mean that we're talking about the employees as children. We're talking about how do you create um, uh, a family environment? Um, you need to have um, really effective parents. Um, and that that role of, of saying, you know, there are going to be um, consequences for behavior, but we're going to be consistent. We're going to be fair. We're going to use discretion fairly. We're not going to hold you um, to some standard that we are not following ourselves. Right. Um, we are not going to um, expect you to treat people in the in the field in ways that we're not treating you, our own employees. Um, that's the that's the kind of moral leadership that. I think is is required here. Yeah, I love that. I was actually just talking to someone else about that analogy earlier today. And oh, that's funny. Yeah, and and about when I think of parenting, I don't I don't think of it as the command and control sort of parenting. I think about it as who is this kid and how how do I I think about it more as a, a coach, not a life coach, but as a how do I make this kid's game in life better. Whether it's um, a good coach, a good parent, a good supervisor, um, it doesn't matter. Everyone um, needs a mentor. Right. And the mentoring 
should reach, uh, help every individual reach that full potential. Yeah. Whatever that's going to be. Yeah. I mean, at, at one point, I, I think I said to each of my kids when they were in sort of young teens, I cannot control you. I'm a consultant to your life. So however you need me to help you learn how to be in the world more effectively, I'm happy to do that. And I feel like that's what good organizations do. They say, how do we help our people be the best at this job and the best for this organization that we can, while also valuing what their goals are? And one of the things that I've I said to um, a chief that I was consulting with their, with their agency um, last year, and I don't know enough uh, with what you run into with healthcare, um, if especially when it comes to you know, private hospitals and things like that. But um, what what I think the one of the deficits for for um, police leaders is thinking that they are in an insular environment that they they're entirely responsible for their own everything. And I think taking a broader systemic approach there to the community. What are yes. how about incorporating your community leaders? What about your elected officials? What about um, the the business leaders? Yes. You know, the, how do you how, you're not alone in this process? And so, and because if you're going to be um, siloed and you're going to say we're just this this um, organization over here and we have this job to do, and you're not. Um, really integrated yourselves within the community, then how do you expect the officers yeah. out in the field to feel like they're connected to the community? Yeah, for sure. For sure. So there are a couple things that stood out to me when I was, I was reading one of your papers, which I'll put in the show notes. You outlined what makes strong leadership. And one of the things that you said was that strong leaders view wellness as a perishable skill. Mm-hmm. Right. They recognize injuries are part of the game. And and I think we often forget that. We certainly for law enforcement, you might imagine that it's easier to think that physical injuries will be part of the game. But I think none of us really think about psychological injuries or emotional injuries or spiritual injuries as being part of the game. And yet we're human. Of course they will be. Yeah, I think there's a problem if if you do this job for any length of time and and you aren't affected um, in some ways, which is right. you have to anticipate that, you have to train for that. Um, but also it, it boils down to the, you know, it's it's not a it's not as hard of a sell for police leaders when we put it when we when we frame it in this way that, you know, why do you require officers to requalify with their weapon on a, yeah. on a regular basis? Why do you re- send them off to to um, emergency driving, you know, defensive driving and emergency driving uh, the vehicle operation? You know, because you're um, arresting control and all of these things, they they consider those perishable skills. But I, I've always said, you know, so you ex, you you think those are perishable skills, but the the thing that the organ that's using you you know functioning, it, um, driving the car, using the weapon, how do you not see that as a as a potential perishable skill? And so yeah, it's it, it's a risk management at, for for lack of a better term, but it's it's something that um, sells a lot of police leaders on that that oh we need to start investing in officer wellness in all of its dimensions because the cost is too great to our organization, to the community, um, when we have people who are not functioning at their best. Right. 
So I also love that you talk about strong leaders as demonstrating moral courage and also humility. It's a tough one. For sure. It is extremely uncomfortable the first billion times you do it. <laughs> but it's, it's also, it, yeah. it is necessary because if you don't have humility, it's really hard to learn what needs to change or to hear the hard things that, that the organization may need to contribute. Yeah, and and the, that that moral courage goes back to what I mentioned before about you you know the the police leaders being um, having a role within the community, and and sometimes uh, feeling just you know that that they're just taking pressure from the elected officials or from the public or from you know they go to town hall meetings or whatever, and so then they they wear that burden, and then they take it out on um, you know their 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 employees. Um, instead of having this uh, be a much more um, collaborative uh, approach. I just love the idea of integrating into the community, being part of the community, having those conversations about how do we partner in this instead of how do we do this by ourselves? How do you do that by yourselves? Because I I think that's where medicine is too, for sure. So Dan, thank you so much for coming on here today and having this conversation. It was it was really great. Oh, Wendy, it's my pleasure. It's, I, I love talking about this stuff. I love that you're, you know, getting all of um, these perspectives out there. It's really my pleasure. Thank you. As always, thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios. We are a grassroots organization and your contributions will keep these episodes coming if any of the work we do is helpful to you. Please give back if you can by making a donation at our website, fixmoralentry.org. And if you are there, you can also purchase a copy of the book and that will also help us to keep going. You can also help by spreading the word and encouraging conversations about the podcast or the book. Share this episode or the book with friends and colleagues and use the social media links in the show notes to tag us. We'd love to see your thoughts. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review this show, that makes it easier for new listeners to find us. Thanks for listening. Keep reading and stay well.